0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's Podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hi, I'm Josh Whiteside, and with me is...
1: I'm Lee Burdick. I'm a senior counsel public agency lawyer for the law firm of Lozano-Smith.
0: And I'm an associate uh, at Lozana Smith dealing with student special education and labor and employment issues. And Lee, we're back together again uh, for, to talk about, does inclusivity matter? I, I think it does. Do you?
1: Absolutely. And I think it matters especially for public agencies and schools. Uh, Because that is the face of where people interact with their government. And it's important that they feel
0: treated fairly and equitably. So for the benefit of our audience, uh, how do we define inclusivity is probably a good thing that we should get to. So I define inclusivity as the quality of trying to include as many different types of people and treat them all fairly and equally. Uh, the best example of this that I, I can think of is you have three kids wanting to look over the outfield fence to see inside the baseball game to watch it, right? And you've got a tall kid, a medium-sized kid, and a small shrimpy kid. And all three of them you know are trying to see and only the tall one can see over the fence. So inclusivity is about thinking of strategies, methods, ways that we can build Um, Supports or for instance, you know wooden structures for the middle kid and the smaller kid to stand on So that way all three can see over the baseball outfield fence and watch the game
1: Well, what you're talking about Josh, I think is the 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 idea of equality versus the idea of equal opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? If we assume that everybody is equal, people who are handicapped in our culture based on religion or their race or their ethnicity uh, or their viewpoint uh, may not have or be treated equally. On the other hand, we as a society is expressed through our government agencies which represent all of us, uh, may need to be more proactive in making sure that all of our constituents, all of our
0: citizens have equal opportunity. I agree. And so inclusivity really is going at the core of looking at who is on staff, um, who are the constituents, who are the students, who are the employees that we're trying to reach, we're trying to represent and trying to create an environment an inclusive environment where every viewpoint is respected uh, allowed to be shared Um, obviously you know if something uh, is presenting a danger or is something that's an anthema to the core philosophy of government um, then that would be a separate issue but overall we're looking at various different viewpoints and not trying to regulate or or only hire or only support students who have a certain viewpoint, but really respecting them and becoming neutral facilitators of those viewpoints and creating a space for everyone to kind of impart their own personal um, uh, opinions and viewpoints uh, without being feeling like they're they're having to stay silent or feeling like they have to not talk about things because it's so different from everyone else that they're working with. I, I think your your points
1: are all good ones, Josh, and I think they go to two ideas that are important for public agencies to think about. One is creating the environment, as you suggested, which means you know hiring the right people, uh, putting them in the right jobs for them, uh, and and being inclusive in the the creation of the environment. We presume that if we create an inclusive environment, that the public agency will then act in an inclusive way. Sometimes the the facts don't meet up with the, the philosophy. And one of the things I think we really need to talk about in this context is what the agency does. How do they act? Uh, on their desire to promote inclusivity and, and treat their constituents, both internal, their employees, their staff, and their external constituents, the public, the people they are there to serve, in an inclusive way. Uh, One challenge my clients have had uh, as they're trying to navigate the the hot political waters right now is a, a variety of social movements that are coming about driven by this need for inclusivity you know you and i've talked about it there's there's a an entire racial injustice movement out there that is reflected in issues around mass incarceration of particular races uh police brutality that does seem to have a uh, a, a different impact on certain races than on others, and of course, it 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 plays in very heavily in the immigration issues, which affect you know local government agencies, state government agencies, and schools in particular, uh, who represent a microcosm of the bigger world in a much a smaller environment where we feel compelled to protect our kids. You know, what other
0: social justice movements do you think are affecting our clients? Well, I also look at the recent uh, women's movements, right, with the hashtag MeToo movement, um, both talking about sexual harassment in the workplace and even uh, the MeToo K-12 hashtag, uh, which talked about sexual harassment that students had felt, or alumni, at the school campuses, either from other employees or other students. And so really it's difficult for public agencies to talk about these issues because it becomes very controversial, becomes very political very quickly. And that, I think, is distinct from this idea of inclusivity, right? When you're commenting on social justice movements and that sort of thing, you are taking a viewpoint you are taking a stand on something some of it may be directly linked to the values and goals of your organization and maybe even match the policies of your district but once you start talking about it in direct connection with one of these social justice movements now it becomes a political statement Um, and so it's really difficult for a public agency to navigate through these waters Uh, Because they're trying to still be inclusive and not limit themselves to just one particular political side or ideology on these matters, but are trying to create an inclusive environment where everyone's political or religious opinion uh, is respected. At the same time, still affirming the rights of those who are in protected classes and need to be supported. Um, And so it's a really, really difficult thin line to walk down.
1: It is. And I think when you go down that path, you've got to start with step one. And in my experience, step one is the obligation of the public agency to treat all of its constituents equally. Uh, it's, it's challenging at times when you have individuals who have uh, uh, sincerely held personal beliefs. Uh, that may motivate their actions over and above their uh, role or duty to uh, public generally. Uh, these,
0: these are challenging times. I want to look at one example in particular that's not a government example, um, but it shows what a private organization can do, and then we'll distinguish what they can do versus what a government agency can do. Or
1: what a government agency can learn from what they do in, in a private environment.
0: So if you look at the NFL, right, the recent hubbub and, and controversy uh, that President Trump has even talked about uh, is the NFL's new uh, standing for the national anthem rule, basically requiring all of their players, coaches, staff to stand and show respect for the national anthem um, before the beginning of a football game. Uh, this is kind of in response, I would say probably directly in response, to the kneeling uh, during the National Anthem that several athletes were performing um, as a way to protest racial inequality and police brutality. Uh, looking at Colin Kaepernick for a local example, right? Um, San Francisco 49er, previous San Francisco 49er um, quarterback who was kneeling to, to demonstrate and kind of support the Black Lives Matter movement. So the NFL came up with this rule and now, you know, people are questioning, okay, now are you just like mandating patriotism, are you compelling speech, and it creates all these First Amendment free speech rights issues. And then beyond that, right, then now there are people that are criticizing the NFL for whether or not they are um, doing that as a way to counter The protest, Um, are they countering, are they making a statement, a viewpoint known about what they feel about whether or not there is this problem of police brutality and racial inequality? You look at the NBA as a counterpoint to that. They have the same exact rule. They came up with the standing for the national anthem rule back in the 1980s, but they don't really get any bad press for it. They got a little bit of bad press in the 1990s because there were some religious NBA players that were refusing to stand for the anthem uh, specifically Muslim and Sikh players and the NBA at that time said no you you need to stand for the anthem you must Um, you must show respect and this is a moment of unity doesn't matter if you're not from this country you still stand you don't have to put your hand over your heart or salute but you do have to stand and respect the moment.
1: I think it's interesting. Nobody is talking about the NBA policy right now, right? No. So, so what's the difference? Why are we treating the NFL policy different from the NBA policy? I,
0: at least based on the reports I'm reading, the NBA players have really responded well to the meetings with the commissioner that they've had without any media, without any camera crews present, talking about these issues of, of racial inequality and police brutality and you look at the recent uh, milwaukee bucks player sterling brown who was arrested kind of in a questionable manner and the commissioner spoke out about it saying that it was horrific and painful for him to watch the the body cam video of this incident and there have been initiatives that have actually been taken on by the league to address these sort of issues on a national level so all of this is kind of the differences in the dialogue and the differences in the action taken by the league, uh, the NBA in this instance, and that's very different than how most local governments and school districts wanna to react to these sorts of controversies, right? We seldom want to address these issues, and I think one of the questions is, can a public agency even do so? Can they make these sorts of political statements? Um,
1: well, let, let's talk about that, and I, and I wanna address a question that I know a lot of listeners will have, Particularly in this context of uh, First Amendment speech. You said that, you know, uh, what the NFL did raises First Amendment implications. And a lot of people will say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because. The First Amendment only prohibits state action infringing on personal speech rights or viewpoints rights rights to articulate certain viewpoints. Uh, there is an open legal question about whether the NB the NFL uh, policy does in fact trigger First Amendment issues because. You can take a completely private forum and turn it into a public forum based on whether you have a tradition of allowing people to express viewpoints like that in your private forum. And, and so I'm not, I'm not even going to try to address whether it, 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 they have effectively turned their private forum into a public forum, which would then be impacted by First Amendment protections Uh, Though, I would say if you have those uh, big bulky football players wearing pink for a month every year in order to support uh, uh, women's health issues or breast cancer awareness, and you allow the, the US military on the field in order to advertise for public services, it's a very real question. Uh, whether they've they've converted it to a public forum and triggered First Amendment rights,
0: and I think the answer to that for public agencies is pretty well settled, right? If you're a public agency, you are the government. Doesn't matter if you're a school district, city, county. Exactly. You are the government, and you cannot limit someone's free speech rights. That's um, right, and especially when they are protected rights based on their point of view. Right.
1: Right. Right. Now, let's say we're talking about those internal constituencies that the public agency have, their employees, their uh, their teachers, their janitors, their clerks. If that individual's expression of their personal viewpoint impedes their ability to do their job that's very different than regulating their speech based on their point of view. That's an employer who has a right to restrict speech that impedes the agency's ability to do its job, right? Uh, that, that has been ruled allowable uh, by the
0: courts. And likewise for students, uh, West Virginia versus Barnett, if the student's failure to stand or if the student's action or passive action during the uh, National Anthem, during the Pledge of Allegiance more specifically, um, is somehow disruptive to the classroom environment. If you're, if you're, it's one thing if a student is just sitting there and not standing, or another person, you know, a student is not saluting, not putting their hand over their heart, not saying the words it's another thing entirely if they are running around the classroom screaming saying i don't like this at all you know i don't want to stand i don't want to i don't want to celebrate or making snide comments during the salute or during you know during the pledge Uh, things like that might tend to Allow a, a school district or a school administrator to regulate that sort of speech.
1: Right, but other than those very narrow limit, uh, you know, protections for the public agency and and allowing them to regulate speech or actions that are effectively speech, uh, they can't discriminate based on viewpoint. Right, and again, that viewpoint can can. Uh, Manifest itself in physical actions. You know, it was uh, it was decided a couple of years ago that a a uh, a woman in the workplace who wore a hijab, uh, a Muslim headpiece, uh, is is practicing her religion, and unless uh that would disrupt her activities. In other words, make an unsafe environment. Let's say she works with paper shredders or you know, something where it might create a safety issue. Uh, the employer, the
0: agency, could not require her to uh, to not wear it to work. And I think this idea kind of goes back to that legal directive that all public agencies have in regards to First Amendment issues which is to be neutral with respect to politics, religion, and social issues, uh, social movements, social discussion. Um, and so the, for these controversial topics, it's, it, you know, this actually just came to light uh, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission case that just happened, where the court in that case, Justice Kennedy, the Supreme Court, um, before before you get to the holding, this is the Colorado cake
1: Baker case right. where the cake baker, the the pastry chef uh, declined to uh, create a wedding cake for a same-sex couple and he declined based on his sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, that that homosexuality is wrong. Now, with that said, talk about the case. Yeah, talk so, about the holding.
0: So, keeping with the football uh, discussion, right? The court, the Supreme Court, basically punted on a lot of the issues about the interplay between LGBT rights and. and they
1: punted on all of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so the the Supreme Court really didn't say a whole lot about you know must the cake the bakery cake maker provide this cake for this lgbt client um, for this same-sex wedding uh, or not They kind of punted on that saved it for another day what they did talk about though very specifically was the actions of the civil rights commission for colorado uh, kind of the government agency and how they adjudicated this case so they looked at when the the baker um, was dealing with Um, the Civil Rights Commission saying you are discriminating against LGBT individuals by not baking this same-sex marriage wedding cake Um, the Baker responded and started talking about his his sincerely held religious beliefs and the Commission at least um, one of the commissioners made comments that you know it's not good enough Um, you know we don't we don't agree with your views and uh, we don't necessarily think that's going to be enough to overcome. And then subsequent to that, another commissioner made a comment equating the baker's refusal to make the same-sex marriage cake with the Holocaust and slavery. So again, really egregious comments being, being made, especially for those you know, who, are, who believe the same thing that uh, this, this baker does. Um, Because it was basically tying their religious beliefs to things that caused slavery in the Holocaust. And for them, right, that's very personal. That's very, that's very much an attack on on their belief system.
1: So, in essence, what the Supreme Court said was we cannot have a fair result unless we have a fair process. And the actions of these commissioners for the Colorado Civil Rights Commissions made it clear that the record they built could not lead to a fair process, that the process was unfair. And unfortunately in this case, it, it was unfair based on religious beliefs, not you know, not based on the intersection of LGBTQ rights. It was just inherently unfair with respect to one of the uh, petitioners, one of the participants in, in the proceeding. Which goes to your point earlier, Josh, about how essential it is that every body of a government agency act in a neutral way with respect to points of view.
0: I mean, it is very concerning that these rogue comments, you know, these, these, min- these comments, singular comments from one, two commissioners on a seven-member panel. Um, are enough to completely wipe away the rest of the case that may have been adjudicated fairly and on the merits. Uh, the court did not come to, you know any conclusion on that, but hypothetically, you know, any sort of comment that's denigrating someone by one rogue member of your board, your school board or of your city council has the potential to just completely, wash away all the work that you've done to adjudicate that case Um,
1: now there is a way i mean obviously uh four out of five or three out of five board members at a school district or on a city council or in a board of supervisors doesn't have the ability to stifle the speech of their their colleagues but when you're building an administrative record, particularly in a public hearing context, you do have the ability to say, to, to create a better record by saying, I am not considering the comments of my colleague, but here is how I'm ruling, here is what I'm basing my vote on with respect to the board. So even the other board members, if they see that playing out, that kind of unequal uh, unfairness that could lead to their board decision being overturned, they can kind of clean up the record with their own comments saying, I'm not considering that. Because the problem is when you get people speaking that way, you don't know how much influence they had over the decision unless the others say, you know, y'all have a right to your own opinion, but I'm not basing my decision on that. And at the end of the day, you can show that a majority of the members did not vote based on those biased beliefs or comments.
0: Yeah, Justice Kennedy did say that there were, he found issue with the fact that no one else spoke up about those comments there was nothing in the written decision regarding those comments and disqualifying them in any way or disavowing them. Exactly. So, so I think those are things to consider for your city council, for your board when you're dealing with these adjudicatory uh, decisions, you know, student discipline, employee discipline, um, whatever it may be in that sort of forum. Um, you have to consider, you know, these sorts of biases that might be rising to the table, uh, how you're going to address with them As a whole as a body as a government agency again we're all supposed to be neutral facilitators we're gonna bring it back to this idea of inclusivity so what are the techniques what are the things that these agencies can do action right What what are actions that they can do that not necessarily going to be a political statement but are going to still reinforce the inclusive nature of their workplaces. And you take a look at the Starbucks example that just happened, right? In April, two black men in a downtown Philadelphia Starbucks coffee shop went in to have a meeting. They tried to use the they the tried to use the bathroom and the Starbucks employees stopped them and said you have to buy something first and then called the cops on them. And so then that led to Uh, A day where Starbucks was closed and we had to get our coffees from somewhere else.
1: And I just want to point out, it is an interesting statement when you're looking at social justice movements that two black men getting arrested in a Starbucks shut down 8,000 Starbucks for an entire afternoon. Yeah, I think it was. That's quite a statement.
0: I think it was 175,000 employees went a four hour uh, worker anti bias training, they called it, um, designed to make people more aware of their implicit biases and and what they call unconscious discrimination is what Starbucks defined implicit
1: it as. bias unconscious discrimination same thing S- yeah right?
0: so they yeah. so they actually had this training and they kind of talked about expectations of the company and of the employees and talked about you know and again this was not just for supervisors this was for employees rank and file you know your entry level positions you know everyone um, this was not just a supervisory, Um, training and so they talked about you know how we're going to be looking at policies we're going to be looking at forms and creating accountability for everyone not just for the supervisors but for everyone within the organization
1: and and the interesting parallel to that in california is that every two years Every uh, employer that has uh, supervisors, every employer, 50 employees or more, has to give training on a variety of topics. Sex harassment, bullying now is included in that, abusive behaviors is included in that. It would be easy for a public agency employer to use that training as a way to promote its understanding and commitment that the agency act in an inclusive manner with respect to all of its constituents. But I like your example of Starbucks a lot because the statement that company made was, it's not gonna stop with our supervisors. Clearly, our baristas are, are the closest face to our public, our constituents, our customers. Uh, so our training has to go all the way down. Public agencies have the right and some might say the obligation to do that as well.
0: I would imagine that there are policies saying that, you know, all employees must respect the, the rights of others and must respect Um, others generally and not harass them not discriminate against them so I don't see any reason why a public agency would not be able to have these types of trainings it may be something that you have to negotiate over you know time to time to do that um, and what that might look like and who might be speaking and these are all logistical things that you have to uh, examine but I think overall the idea of having a training is a good one
1: And if you can't shut down your entire agency for an afternoon in order to have the training, which you can't as a public agency, uh, you can set up uh, um, serial trainings where part of the workforce is in training at a time. You can, though it's, it's a little bit more challenging to make a consistent message. Train your supervisors, then give them the opportunity uh, opportunity to train their reportees, et cetera, on down the line until the the frontline workforce is fully indoctrinated or or oriented to the agency's commitment to inclusivity.
0: Another thing that you can think about um, for your workplace, uh, I'm speaking to the audience now, uh, is the idea of having events. Um, inclusive events so we often have you know it all tied to holidays and that sort of thing but what about having events tied to cultures tied to backgrounds and kind of celebrating different viewpoints different um, you know religious ideas political viewpoints right comes very very difficult to manage that but I think you can come, come up with creative solutions to kind of talk about not just one religion, not just one political viewpoint, but all of them and and kind of have that forum for people to get together to talk about that stuff.
1: And it would seem like our school districts would be the perfect place to do that given their commitment to education generally. Mm-hmm. And they know, our, our clients know, that by educating the kids, we're educating the families. Right, The kids go home with what they learn in the school environment, and they can change the world one family at a time based on how schools treat these issues and how they express their commitment to this.
0: And similarly, I mean, it seems like you know everyone is well aware of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but it's still something to consider. Look around your facilities, look around your office. Um, is it accessible to, to individuals with disabilities? And we're not
1: just talking about people or kids with wheelchairs. We're talking right. about people who are hard of hearing, people who who are uh,
0: eyesight impaired. It's it's a lot of different things. Right? Are we giving them standing desks to help you know with their back problems? Are we? you know, what are the accommodations that can be given? So really diving deep into that process, you know, where does that go, where are the points of failure for that? You know, is it just to your HR person? Are they trained? Are they aware of the issues that could come up? Um, are they aware of the inclusivity that is required? Um, another thing to bring up is, um, uh, is, in terms of where you lay out all of your students or where you lay out all of your employees, if you just have your people of color or people of certain political viewpoints all in one class or all in one location in the building is that really generating this inclusive environment at your workplace or at your schools um, are you just kind of stifling and siloing conversations and really just having people you know become really adamant on one corner versus the other and then when you have your you know your company picnic right then it becomes a smorgasbord of controversy because now everyone's in the same room together and have very different viewpoints that have not had a chance to kind of sort of discuss that or or bring that to light earlier. Right.
1: And you know, I am not oblivious to the idea that public agencies every day are being asked to do more with less, Uh, fewer and fewer resources, extremely tight budgeting. And when you're talking about facilities choices like you are, Josh, like, you know, do you have enough uh, uh, wheelchair ramps? Do you have enough? Uh, standing desks, ergonomic equipment, etc., to to accommodate the inclusivity of people who are physically challenged, in particular, that that's hard to do on such a tight budget. So, you know, to the extent we need to make sure we have the resources in the schools and in the public agencies to do that, that is a statement of of uh, uh, policies and politics that start at the top. How we allocate our money is really the the clearest expression of who we are as a people.
0: All right, well, Lee, thank you for this great discussion. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. As do I, Josh, always a pleasure. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any one of our eight offices throughout California. For details on how to get a hold of us, visit our podcast page at luzannosmith.com slash podcast.